Hey folks, welcome back. This is Andy and this is the Poor Pearls Almanac. Today we have a special guest, James Holt from the Buffalo Field Campaign. If you're not familiar with the Buffalo Field Campaign, they're working to protect the last of America's wild buffalo. Since 1997, they've been working to protect the natural habitat of the wild, free-roaming bison and other native wildlife and stand with First Nations to honor the sacredness of wild buffalo. We talk with James around his work reconnecting indigenous people with these wild buffalo and the role of the government in trying to divide indigenous groups against the best practices for these buffalo. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this conversation. So take a listen. James, thanks so much for speaking with us. Please introduce yourself for our audience. My name is James Holt. I'm the executive director of Buffalo Field Campaign. Awesome. And uh, what do you guys do? We are the only organization in the field every day of the year, monitoring and bearing witness to the mismanagement of the only continuously wild herd of bison in North America. I thought I knew a lot about, or at least like a decent amount about buffalo and bison before I started digging in, especially when I found your organization. So first, can you tell us what actually is a buffalo versus the bison we might buy at the grocery store? Well, bison, you know, the scientific name is bison bison, is the original plains bison that was almost eradicated back in the 1870s and 1880s in history versus its woodland cousin up in Canada over in Northeast Canada, I think up in your neck of the woods there. The woods bison comes from that area. It's a little smaller. The horns are a little narrower versus like the big massive bodies that you get out there in the plains. So yeah, I, don't, I really don't know how to explain, you know, wild bison. It's the, <laughs> sure. the you know, these, these herds are important to us because of the 23 bison um, that survived the slaughter, they, they were from where the central herd of bison is in Yellowstone National Park. And so all the bison that we have, almost all of them come from the only, it's the indigenous species um, that has always been located there in this area. As an enrolled nest purse man, you know, that this is also, that area of central Yellowstone is also ancestral grounds for my people. And so, you know, that's the tie that I have is and why I, chose to be a part of this organization and yeah. is, is because of their mission and, and how it um, corresponds to my own cultural life ways. Yeah, that's amazing that some survived and that there are so few. It's astounding that somehow, all you know, there's this tiny, tiny genetic pool that's like rewilding. Or I don't even want to say rewilding because that's not the right word. That's helping a population return to a landscape from such a, a narrow pool. It's really unbelievable. So one of the terms I had seen on your website is this idea of like beefalo, which I think is probably, it's just, it's just a really interesting term. To It's like this idea of like the, the hybrid between like bison and like cattle to like make essentially like a pretend bison so that they can sell expensive beef at the store. So I'm curious about your thoughts about that kind of work and kind of how that plays in or could be destructive to the work you guys are trying to do. You know, that's a great question. Uh, bison restoration has many different interpretations by people um, within this realm, so to speak. The Buffalo Field Campaign, wild is the way for us. And the only bison that live without borders besides that of the National Park, which is a travesty and kind of at the heart of our mission, 
they're the only ones that do not have the fence that aren't obligated to the vaccinations, the corralling, all of these steps that are take place, even within the wild genetics that are transferred to, let's say, through the Fort Peck program and then restored to tribal lands. Those bison then become products of initiating the domestication process. So even the, the wild bison that are restored to tribal lands from Yellowstone inevitably themselves become showing characteristics of domestication. And so the beefalo industry and all of that, you know, there's 500,000 bison, so to speak, throughout North America, and there's only 5,000 wild bison. So there's definitely a huge differentiation. People are treating all bison as wild bison, and, and we know that's not true. These other bison, beefalo, definitely show signs of domestication. You know, they, they act that way. They're, they're docile. They're definitely more domesticated than the wild counterparts. And there's a lot of traits that separate the two. Yeah. So do you think the development and I guess the media around like, you know, oh, I'm going to have bison for dinner and like how, how that's portrayed. Do you think that's a good or a bad thing for what you guys are trying to do? Do you think it raises awareness or do you think it's more of a people are now not going to be concerned about them because they feel like they see it always on the shelves? It's definitely that. It's a, it's a public relations campaign where even Yellowstone National Park itself is saying that we have too many bison here. We have to cull. This year we're culling six to 900. And if we achieve 900, we'll consider another 200. Literally 20% of the, the wild population when there's an entire ecosystem out there. And so they're, they're the ones that control the media. You know, we're, we're small fish compared to the imprint that they have. And, and so definitely they're carrying that message where there is no short supply of bison because you can go into the store and buy it for a pound of it and eat it at home without saying that that's, it could be organic. It could be grass fed, but it's still raised behind a fence. It still has all the characteristics of, of a domesticated livestock. You know, it's, it's very difficult for us to get our message out there and to counter that strong platform that the Park Service, the state of Montana, they enjoy. The only way that we can elevate this issue on our behalf is to win in the courts, you know, exercise our on-the-ground relationships with these herds and show the travesties of this mismanagement to really orchestrate that what they're saying is not true. And, and hopefully we get enough heads turned our way and enough attention given to us where they can start carrying that message and, and hopefully people will start listening. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to talk to you guys. So you brought up the Yellowstone National Park and kind of how they're managing the bison. I wonder if you could just go into a little bit more detail about that. The Park Service has been managing the bison insofar as their authority allows, which is to say within the, the confines of the park boundary. Their biologists have delineated that there is only one distinct population of bison in Yellowstone National Park. We've, through our own observation and our history of the science, Buffalo Field Campaign asserts that there's two distinct populations, and the central herd of bison is ailing. Um, in 2011, they decimated the central herd by killing over a thousand animals. The herd has never recovered. And so if the Park Service says that there's only one population, 3,500 animals is considered the baseline to ensure there's genetic diversity of that population. 
we keep winning in court and we ascertain that there's two populations that 3,500 is, is failing combined between the two subpopulations. And there needs to be a, a, a much larger population on the ground. They have to access historic migratory pathways, fulfilling their historic footprint within the ecosystem as a keystone species. This all has to be done, not just to honor the buffalo, but to honor the landscape and build that resilience that we want into the ecosystem itself against climate change, against human-caused ecosystem degradation. We're seeing all these things on the ground, and bison are key to reversing all these trends. Yeah. With the bison in Yellowstone Park, are they allowed to leave or are they actually fenced in? Um, There are no boundaries. There are no fences, but the fences of... uh, the agents themselves. There's hazing, there's quarantining. Over the last six years, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has slowly enclosed further down the areas that they allowed treaty hunting or hunting in general to take place. So they've created these canned hunt conditions right at the park boundary. So in essence, the canned hunts divert public attention away from the heavy-handedness of the managing agents themselves and they place that on the hunters and it's really a you know a misnomer to say that the hunters themselves are causing this when it's really the the outcomes of these managing agencies so the park service manages the the population with a montana in mind really it's montana who's obstructed the expansion and the ecological restoration of bison through the landscape so the park service has in essence kowtowed to Montana's assertions. And that's something we've um, fought also. And the writing has been on the wall. We've uh, effectively orchestrated that this brucellosis myth that uh, managing agencies utilize as a pretense for the slaughter really boils down to conflict over grazing north of Yellowstone National Park in our federal lands. And the Forest Service wanting to create that landscape as a place for grazing cattle rather than as an ecosystem for wildlife. Yeah, We are contending that the ecosystem itself is, is more important for our future generations, that we will need those ecosystem services. And, and right now, it's, it's, it's not the case. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. So it's really interesting. I was, when I was reading about some of the stuff you guys had positions on, you guys had done an open letter about the hunting of bison. I want to ask a little bit more. I know they, they have these slaughters where they would come in and call the herd, so to speak. And at least the way it was presented in different articles, I had read about that those bison went to feed indigenous tribes. But the way you're describing it sounds a little bit different. It sounds like you are interested in indigenous rights to be able to hunt bison like in, on tribal lands and things like that. What is Yellowstone doing in this hunting process versus how you envision these things should be happening? Good question. The tribes themselves, as signatories to the interagency bison management plan and the the process developing the priorities within that plan, there's a few treaty tribes that have a seat at the table. The Nespers tribe, the Confederate tribes of the Salish Kootenai, and the Intertribal Buffalo Council. So those three tribal entities have a seat at the table. The Nespers tribe, of which I'm a member of, has been calling quite loudly for an ecosystem-based population management for the Yellowstone, understanding that the park is not the ecosystem. It's, it's but a part, a piece of it. 
And so what I've witnessed the Nest Perch delegates represent is they want an ecosystem-based management plan. For them, there's a, a solidification or a, a consistency for their treaty rights that are just precursor to their cultural lifeways. So that relationship is strengthened by having bison proliferate the landscape. And so it's also built upon this sacred responsibility that we have as Sahaptan people, Columbia Plateau people. Um, it's this notion called Tamalwit. It's a sacred responsibility that was bestowed upon us by our maker when he brought us into this world because we know that we came after the rest of the world. And so Creator brought the animals together and he asked them what they would do for the human beings who were coming. And so all the animals, they got in line and they told Creator what they would give of themselves for the humans. And when all the last animals, trees, bushes, insects, all went through the line, he told human beings what they would be given. And he told us that we had our sacred responsibility to speak for those things, to act and honor them and respect them. And so in this process, it took a, the nest persons who came late into it to assert their treaty rights to then begin that cultural, spiritual, sacred relationship with bison was to speak for them. And they see that the Park Service is not their only home. It's, it's a part and parcel with federal Indian policy throughout history, and that's to force us onto the reservation to minimize our numbers and manage for scarcity. And so we still see that proliferate through to today with bison management and that indirect connection that they're forcing tribes to have as a relationship with bison. And so tribes like the Nespers are saying they want that in a bigger way. They want to satisfy that sacred relationship as it means to them, as they were promised and treaty. And so it's definitely added a different dimension to the whole planning process, which I believe is why uh, Yellowstone National Park is now um, initiated a new environmental assessment to create an environmental impact statement to establish an entirely new bison management regime for this Yellowstone populations. And so it's taken a while to develop. And, and I would like to hope that it is based on Buffalo Field Campaign's advocacy over the decades of showing that this heavy handed management has an impact. I mean, we've seen years where they've got, they've finished their hazing, their quarantine, their ship to slaughter. And we've seen clan herds come out with yearling bulls leading calves five calves and that was the herd now because so many had been killed off and it was horrible to Jesus. see we've seen them forcibly kill the ancient migratory knowledge of those clan mothers to take their babies out to the calving grounds to take them to the early exposure grass grounds where they increase their chances to survive and so we've seen and witnessed the park service the forest service the state of montana department of livestock create these conditions and for them to act like now they have the best interest is a little disingenuous. And it's up to us to, to hold these agencies accountable to ensure they do create the change that's needed. And, and frankly, the, the alternatives that they're proposing in this new process are still falling short. And so, you know, we have a lot of work to do.
you know the bison the wild bison deserve a place and and it's it's not it shouldn't be them or cattle and you know we're seeing that too often within the forest service you know we can talk about the tule elk over in central california on the coast or any nature of uh, cattle versus wild wildlife and the forest service is on the wrong end of history yeah the government tends to do that yeah <laughs> Hey there, it's Andy from the Porporals Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting porporals.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. So I have a question that's a little bit kind of related, but a little bit outside of the scope of this. But I was thinking as you were talking about this, that you brought up this fact that it sounds like there are transporting these buffalo for slaughter the same way you would do like cattle is that correct yes two questions um is that because of like fda regulations or is this like an, an explicit attempt to disconnect indigenous tribes with those animals it's definitely or it's, both. it's both um it's it's a it's a legacy tool of the department of livestock and forest service who who definitely led the way in the past decades early on when the slaughter was very heavy they were the ones that did that. Over time, the tribe screamed loudly, and now they have what's called the Fort Peck program, which is obviously located on the Fort Peck Reservation north of Yellowstone National Park. I believe the quarantine for slaughter is almost at an end because they have so much land available to house seronegative bison to be restored to tribal lands. So that's minimizing the amount of bison for slaughter, but still the positive bison are still sent. And, you know, some go to tribes, some have went to tribes historically, not all tribes, you know, they, they play favorites. If you agree to the slaughter, you know, you get animals. So that they have mechanisms to low hanging fruit for some tribes that have real harsh economic conditions. Others that don't have a connection right now to bison, you know, they'll be quick to accept them. So they're, they have ways to create, diversion, disconnection, conflict amongst parties that should be seeing eye to eye on these issues. So it's divisive. It's, it's layered. There's going to be a lot less slaughter in the future, but there's going to be a lot more quarantine and still, you know, these, these other parties who are interested in this quarantine and restoration in other places, the, the places they're going to be restored to, they're obligated to manage those bison as livestock as domesticated animals. And so once again, they get accustomed to human interaction. They are begin the vaccination and an annual inoculation process. They're, they're used to feed, you know, they get fed hay and oats. They're behind fences. So again, there's only one way to have wildlife and that's for wild to be free to do their thing. And, and that's not it for us. You know, we want for better or worse. Yeah. We want the ecosystem saturated first. But it's not a zero a zero sum game to us either. We we see that they can be both. You know, we're not before 
Buffalo Field Campaign has been here a long time and have seen what tactics and what tools work better than others. And, and we see that these zero-sum games, everybody is doing that now. It's you or me, and that's a false narrative. Yeah. You know, we can find... The internet's really great at that. <laughs> we can find common ground, and we do want to, to have allies, especially strong ones like tribes who are just trying to reconnect with their cultural lifeways, whether that's subsistence hunting within the Yellow, Yellowstone ecosystems, as preferred by the Nespers tribe, or with a, a, a strong on-reservation herd that tribes like the Blackfeet Nation... Fort Belknap, you know, these other reservations want, you know, and, and require on reservation herds to, you know, provide for that subsistence needs, those dietary needs on reservations. You know, there there is abject poverty. You know, that is the nature. Even here at Nespers right now, we probably have 30, 40% unemployment rate. You know, we're a third world country out here. So we have these needs for our diets. You know, we need bison. So it. Um, those tribes do need to supplement their diets. They do need the economic development that comes from the value-added products that a bison herd represents, the cultural ties that the reunification of bison means to those peoples. So it has all these different layers, but none of them are a zero-sum to the needs of the ecosystem there in the Yellowstone, and that's our message. We don't deny that tribes have vast and significant needs. But, but so does the ecosystem, so does the land, and we are at the 11th hour. You know, we've been told that time and time again, and, and, and we have to do it. You know, I've, I'm a spiritual man, and I go to those arenas as well, and it's frightening to hear our medicine people talk of the prophecies that are coming, the time of that's approaching us, and it's the climate, climate science that the scientists are telling us, yeah. the thresholds that we're achieving through carbon dioxide in the air our, our spiritual leaders see this and they're seeing it and they're telling us and it's it's scary and we have to prepare absolutely bison in the ecosystem is a, is a big tool to do those things to build that resilience that we will need and our unborn generations will need bison are one of those things that i don't think people realize how like you know we hear stories at least in you know mainstream history of like the, having like tons and tons of uh, bison across like the midwest but their scope was actually so much bigger than that, that we have evidence of them basically across the entire country. And being as big as they were, they had such a big impact on what ecosystems looked like. There's a few papers that came out recently talking about the Eastern Agricultural Complex and how while we think that a lot of domestication for like maygrass and all these other plants uh, was because of the flooding around the rivers. But also a lot of those early domesticated species are found basically following the bison so that there might have been these multiple uh, venues of which domestication of plants started and that bison were probably not only this animal that provided food for you know millions of people, but also was a driver in creating the ecosystem that allowed people to thrive. And uh, I think there's just so much we, we don't know because that that history has been disconnected from us through colonialization and things like that. Yeah, it's definitely the oral histories we know as indigenous peoples, but it's very interesting to see that science come to the fore now. There's a recently retired biologist from the National Park Service who wrote about this phenomena he's witnessed and studied over his tenure at Yellowstone National Park is bison creating what's called the green wave through just the way they forge upon the landscape, they create this entire wave of revegetation by by 
entire plants on ecosystems on a landscape scale, which brings the insects back, which brings birds back, which, I mean, it, it has such a benefit to so many other species that it's, it's, it's hard to even quantify. Now, the thing I really struggle with around this idea of like, okay, it would be fantastic to bring, you know, bison back to like a massive scale here in the United States is like, how does that work under like, basically like capitalism where people own their little plots of land? There's all these sub uh, suburbs with like fences up everywhere. Like, is it, I, I don't know if it's because I'm like in a very urban area here in New England, I maybe have a skewed perception of what something like this would look like. I mean, it sounds like there are tribes that are working with populations that are wild. Could you speak a little bit about like how, if it's realistic to reintroduce bison at that kind of scale or like what, what are your thoughts about that? I definitely think it's, it's possible. I've, I've been researching these conditions for some time now. And with administrations like the one we have now, there is this possibility for this monumental lift I mean, we have a Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, who believes in the 30 by 30 initiative where they preserve large landscapes um, before 2030 to combat climate change. Um, you know, in our view, the Yellowstone ecosystem should be a candidate for that designation. And it would take significant infrastructure funding that that would be necessary to do that. And, and we've seen those priorities within the administration's transportation bill the infrastructure bill and different wildlife management bills, there, there is opportunity there to create the wildlife crossings that are necessary, the wildlife fencing that's necessary along important transportation corridors for us. You know, we can provide the safety measures necessary to minimize wildlife fatalities as well as protect our own, you know, our, our agricultural interests, our communities, to keep those intact, there, there is a way to stage that implementation and, and make it where that by the time this population achieves ecosystem saturation, we will have incrementally built up the infrastructure to accommodate that growth. So there is planning that can be done um, that are in, in conjunction with other facets of our, of our existence through infrastructure, through um, informed uh, building within our communities. You know, we can, we can build in the the resilience necessary to accommodate the wildlife. Yeah, I think it really comes down to reassessing our relationship with ecosystems in a way that we fundamentally don't today. Um, you know, I I imagine like again a, a bison being as big as it is like here where I live there's nothing that size. You know, we occasionally will get like a black bear that'll walk through town and that's like once a year and that's like the biggest thing we'll see. And I think that for us to fundamentally be able to grapple with climate change, we have to reassess our relationship with our ecology. And this is one of those places where there has to be an integration of our understanding of ecology and giving some flexibility to things like private property and our understanding of our relationship of how private property relates to ecologies and the responsibilities that, I don't want to say responsibilities, but maybe the willingness to give up some authority on that private property for a greater good, you know, and the ecology, these very important species that are fundamental, like you said, to restoring ecology, to make them more resilient for climate change. And um, it's, it's a really interesting and complicated conversation. And I'm really glad folks like you are doing this kind of work. 
You said there's some new uh, regulations going on around, or uh, they're in the process of developing some new guidelines around Yellowstone, I believe, on bison. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and what your hopes are for that. Yes. So, you know, they've just initiated an environmental assessment process to, to reconsider how they manage bison in Yellowstone. Three alternatives they have um, presented. Alternative A or 1, I don't know which one it is, is status quo management, shooting for 3,500 to 4,000 bison uh, year in and year out. The second alternative raises that population to about 6,000 with a little bit more concessions toward bison having greater mobility to move around the ecosystem, but still have to stay within the confines. And then the third alternative bumps that population up to 8,500 bison and um, has a greater degree of tribal input. Those treaty tribes that have a relationship with Yellowstone bison will have a greater seat at the table. And this is all predicated on bison having to stay within the confines of the park boundary. And so it's a flawed plan based upon that alone. It's still the only wildlife in the region that would be managed in that way. Elk are able to move everywhere they can or want to freely throughout the ecosystem. They have transmitted brucellosis to cattle, which the cattle industry feels fear so much. But there's a huge uh, income generator from those elk per- hunting permits, so they, the elk go unmolested. Bison have never given cattle brucellosis in the wild, but yet they're forced to into this tiny population because they're large enough to contend with the grazing in that forest service public land. So, you know, our work is not done when this plan, the new plan still fails to produce the ecosystem services and the the ecosystem based management that we, you know, is only appropriate. You know, our work is not done. Yeah. I'm assuming you would like to see more than less with uh, what Yellowstone is proposing. It's an interesting scenario, especially the way they're manipulating the local tribes to uh, basically get their way with giving up as little as possible. I have one other question that's, again, a little bit outside of the scope of this conversation. I I know a couple of fairly popular hunters who have been out, I think last year, hunting bison and working uh, or hunting alongside indigenous tribes. Considering all of the background of this very long and complicated and basically abusive history by the U.S. government around bison. Uh, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about like for people like myself that may be hunters, would you rather white people basically stay away or do do you see it as like an important financial driver for the tribes and that's why they're probably partnering up with these folks that can afford to do those things? Well, I know the hunters themselves stay separate. You know, there's very little intermingling of treaty and non-treaty hunters in the region. Further, I don't know that there's any conflict between treaty and non-treaty hunters in the region. Uh, I think it's definitely um, looked upon as more of a, an American value, a Western value, the opportunities to subsist and to provide that subsistence for yourself, I think is a very powerful thing. And I've never, I was the individual, I was key to treaty tribes reuniting with the Yellowstone bison. It was my research that united the Nez Perce tribe and now all the other six treaty tribes or seven now 
that exercise, that relationship. For me personally, it feels great to, to know that what was severed for us in the 1870s was reunited under my watch. And that was a powerful thing because we still utilize our treaty reserve rights as a backbone, as a foundation for our subsistence throughout the year. I still can dry and freeze salmon for the year that I catch myself. I still I hunt moose, elk, deer. I used to hunt buffalo until I uh, assumed this position, and I take this seriously, so I no longer do so. Um, but I still hunt for um, my livelihood. And uh, my wife and my daughters, they still dig roots and pick berries. So we... We do believe in this, this way of life, and we know that other people do too. So I don't think that there's a conflict there. And I think that people do wish there was, you know, they try to, as you said, as you mentioned earlier, the media and individuals are really good at polarizing these issues in hope that they can find a way to drive a wedge. And so far as I've seen on the ground, I've never seen a wedge driven between treaty hunters and non-treaty hunters. Awesome. James, you're doing amazing work. I feel like there's so much to be learned that I, I feel like we just scratched the surface, but I can't, I can't take your whole day up. For folks that want to support your work uh, or want to read more about what you guys are doing, where do you want me to send them to? Please go to buffalofieldcampaign.org. Sign up for our newsletters. You'll get our updates from the field. They'll start coming out, if not every week, every other week right now. They'll let you know exactly what we're doing as we monitor these actions and outcomes of the winter operations plan. This is the hardest time for us where they, they do all these heavy-handed management actions. So watch us, see what we're doing. Every month I issue a, a On the Buffalo Trail publication that just kind of outlines uh, the issues as I see them over the last month. So we have a lot of things, you know, follow us on Instagram, follow us on Facebook. And I'm sure those handles are at Buffalo Field Campaign. Yes, they are. Awesome. Follow us and, and stay up to these issues. We are driven by our grassroots supporters. They're our backbone. They are the wind beneath our wings and, and join us. Awesome. James, thanks so much. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you.